Father, we, your children, face accusation. The world, the flesh, and the devil seek to tear us apart day after day. These three wreak havoc on your church. They use deceptive propaganda to persuade. They use powerful smoke screens to confuse. They want us to choose the treachery of sin over the goodness, the, the pure joy of living in submission to you. We praise you. We thank you for sending us your son. Thank you for his work on our behalf. May we be a shining light in a dark world. And thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we now ask you to please work in our souls this morning. Lord, in you, all accusations drop. Be our refuge this morning. Give us grace to hear of your grace. Give us grace to hear of your mercy and your truth, all to the praise of your glory. We ask you for help. We need you. We love you. Amen. Well, we've all heard the horror stories. Uh, people being wrongfully accused of a crime they did not commit. There are nonprofit agencies out there which track and help fund and overturn wrongful convictions. Uh, one, one nonprofit online that I saw had helped free innocent individuals who had served at least one, if not two decades in prison for a crime they did not commit. Uh, most recently, two men from Chicago were declared innocent and released after spending 35 years in prison. Their alleged crime was arson, which led to, uh, left two people dead. Uh, but just, just two weeks ago, it was legally discovered that their, con their conviction, life in prison without parole, was based on coerced confessions and faulty forensic evidence. In Psalm 7, this morning, we are looking at one man, David, who was falsely accused by a man named Cush. Scholars don't know who this Cush person was. He was, he was a Benjaminite. So he was from the house of Saul. Could have, could have been Saul. Uh, maybe he was Shimei from 2 Samuel. Uh, we, we don't know. But what matters most is, is that we'll look beyond David's situation to the righteous judge who judges justly. Let's look at Psalm Chapter 7, a Shagayan of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity 
that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O oh, righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Well, Psalm 7, Psalm 7 is packed with, with metaphor, and it is perfectly structured. In, in this short psalm, we see so many things. We, we see that the lion's mouth has lies. There is an exiled king who has an oath with three ifs. The righteous judge has omniscient eyesight. This judge is a warrior judge. There's a shield, a sword, and fiery arrows at the ready. The slanderous man, the wicked man, sleeps with sin, gets pregnant, gives birth, and digs his own grave. And we see David pleading at the beginning, having praise at the ending. And it's all, it's all very, very thought-provoking. This is what the Psalms do in our, in our minds and in our hearts. And, and above all, it is the powerful revealed word of God. It is this very word which struck the accuser down from heaven. This morning I want to ask, is your life shaped by this word? Is your inner thought life shaped by the Psalms? In verse 1 and 2, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me for all my pursuer, from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. David prays for deliverance from false accusations. This slander against him was, was like facing a raging lion. In this first verse, he first takes refuge in God. This refuge is a physical metaphor for a spiritual reality. Just like you and I seek shelter from the, the biting cold of a winter storm, which is coming, by the way, not anytime soon, but it'll be here before you know it. Uh, David hides in the shelter of God from the cold, calculating accusations of his enemies. Every one of us here takes refuge in something we, we all flee to something or someone when we're anxious or worried or simply trying to get what we want. Uh, one time I went to the gym and uh, my, my friends like to stop me right there and say, yeah, it was one time because you've only been to the gym once, we, we know. You know I, I saw this guy who was way bigger than me, which was everybody at the gym, but this guy was just closer to me, uh, right? We got to talking and I was, just, I was asking him for some tips on, on workouts uh, toward the end of the conversation, he said something to me that I just, I'll never forget. He said, well, you, you have your church 
and I have mine. The gym is my church, so you'll know where to find me. My church, I'll, just, I'll never forget that. It, it's, it was so personal to him. It, it was so worshipful to him. Gym was his church. Working out was his refuge. Some of us take refuge in the stuff of life, right? It's my stuff. It's my house. It's my car. It's my phone or, or whatever. We, we take our stuff personally. Some of us take refuge in, in the craving for more in life. We, we love the next big thing, like planning my once-in-a-lifetime trip, pursuing my complete financial freedom, shaping my schedule and routine to match my ideal life. Or we might, we might value, might get more pleasure from being praised for personal accomplishment or our ability to, to properly navigate the complexities of life. We, we find refuge in human praise. But when the things we value get threatened, we grow anxious, we feel distrustful, we get fearful. We actually, we become less human. If you remember the, the story when Jesus cast demons out of the man, and he didn't just cast them out of the man to nothingness, he cast them into a herd of pigs, which then proceeds to what? Fall off the cliff. The pig owner runs off to tell the whole town what happened. They come back and they say, we want this guy out of our town. His ministry threatened what they valued. They didn't, they didn't value the one like Jesus did. Their, their great fear made them plead with Jesus to leave. They valued the temporary over the eternal. And when we take refuge in the temporary stuff of life, we're choosing to operate out of a, a view of the world where humans are at the center where everything is owed to us. Tragically, we become less human, not more. When we take refuge in God, we are operating out of a view of the world where God is at the center, where everything is owed to him. In, in the face of bad news, a, a psalm-shaped uh, prayer and thought is, is this. Lord, help if I can just keep taking cues from you, Lord, and your word, then I know this will get worked out the way it needs to be worked out. God, I, I find refuge in knowing that you are more than enough for all that I could ever want or need. In, in the face of bad news, a worldly-shaped prayer or thought is this. Self-help. If I can just keep taking cues from the, the successful and improve myself, I'm sure that I'll get that, we can, we can just fill in the blank, right? That, that raise or promotion I deserve or that ideal lifestyle I want or my dream retirement. I just need to keep my head down and work hard because I'm the only one looking out for me. I take refuge in knowing that once I have this next thing, then I'll be okay. I can, I can take that breath of fresh air. I just want to be okay. And, and church, hear, hear me out in this. Material stuff is not inherently evil. It's not even neutral. Material stuff is inherently good because it was created by God. Dreams and aspirations are not inherently evil. We've been made by a holy God who expresses himself with limitless creativity. But, but our own sinful desire injects itself 
into what is good and tempts us to think that that's the end and that we can have real joy or real happiness in the thing itself and apart from our creator. Sex is a good gift, but sex outside the safety and pleasure of husband and wife is a sinful distortion. Money is a good gift, but, but if you serve at the altar of, of just a little bit more, then it's your master. You'll do its bidding rather than God's. Power is a good gift, but if power is used to, to coerce others rather than to lead and protect, it's going to be catastrophic. In verse 1, David says, Lord, my God. It's personal for David. It's personal for us. God is David's true refuge. Is he your true refuge? Do you want what God wants because you want more of him? Or are, are you taking cues from what seems to just work in this world? In 1 Samuel 17, David recounts an encounter with a lion. He just tells us the straight facts of it. He says, I delivered the lamb from the lion's mouth, and then it arose against me. I struck and killed it. In verse 2 of Psalm 7, David uses this imagery for his prayer to be delivered from his enemies. God's past provision for David was momentum gained for David. If God used David to deliver a lamb from the mouth of a lion, then David knew God could also deliver him from the mouth of his accusers. Amen. When we're faced with trouble, is this where our, our thoughts lead us? Do we recall specific moments, memories of God's past provision for us? Do you see how God's past provision, it is momentum gained in the life of a believer? To the falsely accused, have you spoken to God about this? Let's look in verse 3. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Verses 4 and 5 tell us David, David's been accused of undercutting his allies and plundering his enemies without reason. And he just wholeheartedly disagrees with this. He disagrees with these lies. He wants to get his name cleared of this slander. And so David makes an oath. David uses three ifs here to say, if I'm really wrong, if I'm really in the wrong here, Lord, then here's how you can make it clear to me. Here's how you can answer my prayer. Let my enemies find me and tear me to pieces like a lion. And, and notice what David does not do here. He does not defend himself against his accusers. He doesn't speak to them. He goes to his father. Church, if you've ever been falsely accused, here's what you must do. Speak directly to God about each accusation and make sure to take Psalm 7 with you into your prayer closet. If and when you get slandered, church, don't, don't make a big deal about it to everyone. First, you need to make a big deal about it to God. And, and you know what you should do next? It's 
not right here directly in the scriptures, but it's, it's all over the Bible. I, I'd work through these accusations with a wise Christian. That could be your small group leader or seminar teacher or one of the pastors here. We would love to do that with you. Ask them to help navigate the next steps in a Christ-like way. Ask them to pray for you, to be a faithful gospel witness through this trial. Look at verses 6 through 13. Have you entrusted this outcome to him who judges justly? Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword, He's bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Now, now before, before we move into the, to the core of this question, I want, to, I want to address two types of recurring phrases that we, we just see time and time again throughout the Psalms. Uh, one happens in verses six and seven, and the other in, in verse nine. Okay, so first, verses six through seven. Uh, know, know this, our God is not summoned <laughs> like false gods. Arise, lift yourself up, awake, return. What David is doing here is he is reaching back into the Torah for this language. Numbers 10, and, and whenever the ark set out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. Uh, verse, verses six through seven, this arise, return language, we, we see what looks like command language, like, like we're telling God what to do. But, but as we've noted in previous Psalms, these imperative statements are not demands we make of God. Rather, the words, the, the phrases arise, return, they are prayers to God to do what God promised to Israel, that he would fight Israel's battles. Moses, Moses spoke to God based on how God revealed himself to Moses. And here in Psalm 7, David echoes Moses. David prays the Bible. It's a thing which he just regularly does throughout the Psalter. So, so these are not commands to God. Rather, Moses, David, they're asking God in his mercy to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. Rise up against our foes. Defend us. Because without you, we don't have a defense. God is, God is not summoned with these words. He is glorified by them. He's honored when we acknowledge that he alone can get us out of the mess that we are in. It's the first recurring phrase, and we, we see it again and again in the Psalter. The next recurring phrase we see quite often in the Psalms Verse nine, my righteousness, my integrity. When we see David reference his own righteousness or integrity in this psalm and in others, we, we need to recognize that he's talking about a specific 
situation. Old Testament scholar Peter Craigie said, he does not, David does not for one moment claim absolute righteousness or sinlessness, but only complete innocence with respect to the false charges which have been laid against him. David is talking about this particular situation where he's being falsely accused. If you look at the end in verse 17, David thanks God for not David's righteousness, God's righteousness, because God's righteousness is the original source of all of David's goodness. Okay, so, so now I, wanna, I want us to move into the core of this question. Have you entrusted this outcome to him who judges justly? One commentary I read said that uh, Psalm 7 said this. Psalm 7 is really about one falsely accused. Now, now I, I disagree with this. I disagree with this. And here, here's why. Psalm 7 deals with one falsely accused, but Psalm 7 is really about God, the righteous judge, who can overrule accusations. Because God is righteous, his judgment can remove any type of accusation, whether those accusations are false or true. David's intention in writing the psalm is to direct our attention and our praise to the preeminent judge of all. And we can see his intent in both the content and the structure of Psalm 7. Psalm 7 has a, a chiastic structure. Like, like many of the Psalms, it opens as we expect it to. It opens with a prayer, a plea to God. And then it closes like many of the Psalms do with a declaration of praise to God. These are the, the two A's, the two bookends to Psalm 7. Now, now the B's, David declares his innocence in verses three through five and then declares his accusers as the truly guilty party in verses 14 through 16. And then at the center between the innocent and the wicked is God. This is a purposeful, God-centered intention. Verses 6 through 13, they are a show and tell of God most high. He is the grand arbiter and judge. The content here makes it clear how God will exonerate the innocent and deal with evil. Now, within David's writing structure here, he, he further zooms in on God as judge. Verses 9 through 11, we see another, another chiasm. And, and this is just, it's just so helpful uh, because these characteristics, they sum up the ideal judge. If I'm on trial and I'm falsely accused, I want a judge who can see past circumstantial smoke screens and wisely test each person's true intent. Verse nine, if I'm on trial, I want a judge who is righteous and divinely so. Their character overflows with all that is good and upright. Their very impulse is to do good in the face of evil. I want a judge who can shield the innocent from the lies of the accuser. And, and not only shield or protect, verse 10, but also restore all dignity. I want a judge whose habit it is to, to rescue, to save those who are falsely accused from their accusers. I want a judge who's righteous because a righteous judge will always make the right decision. Yeah. When their gavel strikes down, the unjust shut up and listen up. 
The very best of judges are indignant. They hate what is evil and side with the good. God is this most excellent judge. Indignation here means God expresses wrath toward evil. One scholar said of this indignation, God himself is far from lukewarm. His indignation every day is more constant than any human zeal, having no tendency to cool and to either compromise or despair. The content and structure of Psalm 7 centers on God, the righteous judge. It deals with David's situation by hinging everything on God's ability to judge justly. Next, verses 14 through 16. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. When one theologian thought that this birth metaphor was, uh, uh, it's just what they wrote, extremely distasteful. Uh, it's, it's certainly disturbing. Here the wicked man sleeps with sin, gets pregnant, and the newborn is a bundle of lies. This is disturbing. Men can't get pregnant. Sin being the exception to that rule. This is far worse than just being distasteful. This is an extremely disturbing truth. James, James picks this up in James 1.14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This, this cycle of desire, sin, and death all stems from our own sin nature. When we flirt with our own sinful desire, sin doesn't just flirt back. It seeks to violate. Sin works to take advantage of us, to use us for its own purposes. And apart from Christ, it's in our nature to let sin wreak havoc in our lives. Happily. But, but sin disturbs the sinner's conscience until it's deadened. It brings guilt and shame down upon the sinner. Sin damages the sinner's soul. And it is damning. It damns the sinner to a place without possibility of parole. Hell. Christian, a part of growing in our hatred for sin is understanding sin's nature as laid out here in the Psalms, as laid out in James 1.14. Sin is not just passively waiting for you. It is actively out to get you, to violate you. Sin, sin seeks, it, this is disturbing, it seeks to be spiritually intimate with us, to impregnate us with even more wickedness. I hope this makes us hate sin. As, as we mature in the faith, our hatred for sin will grow. We, we will grow to hate sin when we see how it, how it offends God and also distorts his good creation. And, and we will hate it all the more when we see how sin's pleasure, it really does pale in comparison to knowing and loving Christ. Verses 14 and 15 here, Derek Kidner, he memorably, memorably states that sin here uh, is both fertile 
and futile. Sin is fertile in verse 14. Sin is futile in verse 15. In futility, the wicked digs his own grave. Now, scholars have noted how that the Hebrew plays on, on a pun in the original Hebrew language, uh, yipol, the word for fall, and yipal, the word for make. They fall in the hole that they have made. Okay, yipal, make, yipol, fall. The wicked yipol into what they yipal. Sin sounds strikingly similar to its own downfall. What does it mean to sin? It means a lot of things. But it, but it certainly means to sin is to foreshadow your own undoing. We see the proverbial pit being dug by God's enemies all throughout the Bible. You, you have the Tower of Babel, united boldness resulting in, in fractured, what, Babel. Pharaoh's obstinate will dug his own watery grave. Gallows made by Haman became gallows made for Haman. Psalm 9:15 picks up this, this language. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Here, here is clear evidence of God's active involvement in his world. Whenever the wicked start sinning and whenever the wicked get caught, have confidence that the Lord has made himself known. It is the all-wise God versus these finite evildoers. It's just, it's just pervasive in the scriptures. Wickedness will inevitably be its own undoing. And we say, but, but, I, but I see people all the time get away with get away with stuff, anything, not just lying, not just cheating or stealing, but, but rape, murder, manipulation. Yes, Jesus saw this too, but he could see what we cannot. He saw evil to its final end, righteous judgment. And he said this, he said this, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Sin is disturbing for many reasons, but, but perhaps what, what is most disturbing about it is that people who sin actually think they can get away with it. it, it as long as they can make it to the grave without being found out. It's just, it's just among the greatest lies ever told. Verse 17. Do you see our God who's like no other? He strikes down evil. His vindication of the innocent is sublime. I will give thanks. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Here's a helpful summary of Psalm 7 from one theologian. It says this, God vindicates the innocent and judges the wicked. And this deserves praise. It does. Praise him for this. He's a righteous judge. And I think, well then, good for the innocent. <laughs> it's not me. Bad for those of us with so much sin in our lives that we're just unable to join in with them. 
if God is the righteous judge, then how could the charges for our sin ever get dropped? If evil must always pay, how can a righteous judge forgive crime? This is the good news for sinners. In the gospel, we find each one of us are rightly accused of the crimes that we have committed. We find our greatest sin is our rebellion against a holy God. But God in his mercy sent his son. He sent his son and his son was innocent. We are not innocent. Our our deepest failures, our deepest anxieties, our darkest secrets. God is the judge, tester of hearts and minds. He sees them all. His bow is bent. But Jesus died in our place. He took the fiery arrows of judgment. The sword of God's wrath pierced his own son's hands and feet. God made his son who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ died trading our status of guilty for his status, innocent. When we believe in him, we are counted as righteous in the eyes of the righteous judge. When we seek shelter in Christ, we, we find refuge that is eternal, it's everlasting. But, but if you despise this righteous God, if you think sin is not all that serious, and this, all of this is some kind of overplayed, overreaction, then realize that God is not who you think he is. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is the righteous judge. If you aren't covered in Christ's righteousness, then when the gavel next strikes, your verdict will be guilty. You'll have dug your own grave. So so turn from your sin. Seek the forgiveness offered to you at the cost of the judge's son. And then, verse 17, live to his praise. Church, our greatest accuser has fallen. Luke 10, 18, Jesus Jesus said this. And Jesus said to them, to his disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Satan incited the fall of man, and it has not gone unseen. His final judgment will include the pit that he's dug out for himself. At the coming of Christ, Satan fell, and at the judge's appointed time, Satan will one day fall even further. Biblical scholar D.A. Carson wrote the following on on Luke 10, 18. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He says this, the decisive turning point has taken place. Satan is defeated in principle. He's cast out of heaven. The accuser of the brothers and sisters is gone. Though doubtless Satan has been operating on the earth since the beginning of the creation, he is now restricted to the earth and has lost his access to God that enabled him to accuse us before God so directly. The reason he has been cast out is the triumph of Christ. Satan has no basis for accusation anymore. Why? 
because a redeemer has arisen. If you're in Christ, then the accuser's accusations hold no weight. Jesus has been judged in your place. Let's pray. Lord, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Your word has discerned our thoughts and intentions this morning. None of us here can claim innocence. None of us are righteous, not a single one. But in your mercy, you forgive Because of your great love, you have given us your son so that we can be set free from the bondage of sin, death, and hell. God, you are like no other, and we praise you. Because of what your son accomplished, your children share in his sublime status. In Christ, we are declared innocent. And if the son has set us free, then we are free indeed. We praise you for this undeserved kindness. Amen.